If you're listening outside of these walls, you're listening to the Broomfield Baptist Church, the Sunday morning service, this is the pastor, uh, bringing the morning message that I've just simply entitled, Only Two Choices. Only Two Choices. And you can find our passage of study in the Gospel according to Matthew in chapter number 6. Matthew chapter number 6. We'll be looking together beginning at verse number 19, and as the Lord wills, we'll go as far as we can in our study this morning, and I trust that His Word will speak to our hearts and administer what we need today. You know, sometimes I feel so very inadequate. I don't know how Charles Spurgeon felt every time he approached the pulpit, but I've read his words and his lectures to my students, and there were times when he was very uh, very anxious, he would admit, to be very anxious about coming to this desk. One time, uh, he tells a story about him getting so worried over his meeting that he had to go preach at that uh, for weeks leading up to it, he just exhausted himself. And his account was Sunday. the Sunday he stepped into the pulpit, he was so exhausted just from worrying about getting it out of the way that he was so, he said, what am I so worried about? And so that's kind of a segue into where Jesus is going, but I just want to uh, let you know, I am inadequate. I don't have what you need. And as much as I would want to be able to provide that, I find out more and more every day how limited I really am. But I'm thankful that God is limitless, except for the limits we put on Him. And He's omnipotent, and He's omniscient. And when we trust Him, He gives us exactly what we need from His Word. And so, I'm doing what I'm doing by faith today, breaking the bread, Trusting that God will take my feeble words and magnify His powerful word, that that will be what resonates with your heart. Maybe it's something, you know, I, I love how the Lord does this. I've been in messages before. I've been in preaching times before. And it wasn't necessarily something that the pastor said or something that, uh, that he directly stated, but it was a verse maybe that he didn't even reference, but I was looking in my Bible, and the Holy Spirit led me down that path, and I went and I checked that verse, and I said, wow, what a blessing. And the Holy Spirit just gave me something right there that I'm not sure, uh, you know, maybe one or two others might have might have gleaned the same thing. Maybe it was just me that day, but that's God, and He moves, and He provides. And so as we're in Matthew chapter number 6, we want to look at verse 19, and it's a familiar passage to any disciple who has walked with Jesus for uh, for any time. Uh, this is a go-to spot. We go to this and we quote it over and over. We talk about laying up treasure in heaven. We talk about going to this passage when we're dealing with worry and anxiety. And all of those things are true. But what I don't want to do today is to lift this from the context in which it sits. And I want you to see the bigger picture. We began doing this in our last time together. And I pointed out something that I haven't really seen any other commentaries uh, do And so I asked the church family to, to validate me, to check me, and to make sure that I'm on target when I'm looking at the context in a broader fashion. Now, I will admit there, there seems to be a, a new statement being made here by Jesus, but I'm not prepared to completely disassociate it from what he said, particularly regarding what preceded it. Fasting, prayer, almsgiving, I think that is still the major unit of discussion that our Savior is making. And so as he's leading his disciples along, we have looked at the Beatitudes in this so-called Sermon on the Mount, this uh, teaching that Christ gave his disciples on the hillside that day that Matthew records for us beginning in chapter 5. 
Jesus went up into a mountain. His disciples that had followed him, they came to him. He sat and he taught them. Others were within earshot, but the teaching was primarily aimed toward his disciples. His introductory matter was the Beatitudes, as we call it. The blessed attitudes, the attitudes towards a blessed life. And I, I would just remind you of our time with that for those who were with us that we talked about this is the Lord's blueprint for how to build a blessed life and following Him. So everything that we talk about from chapter 5 and on is given to saved people. Let's just say that out front. These aren't means to gain grace or favor from God. We, we shouldn't look at anything in the Sermon on the Mount as a sacramental or a means to be able to get God's grace. James teaches us the proper order. And James, in fact, is an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount in many ways, the book of James. As James writes, he tells us about faith and works. He tells us about pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. What is that pure religion in God's eyes? It's the only place that religion really is talked about in the scriptures. And so what happens after a person finds Christ as their Savior, believes on Him, and then says yes to His invitation to follow and makes Him Lord of their life and begins to follow in His footsteps as a disciple? What happens there? Well, this message that Jesus Christ gives is for that person who is blood-bought, born again, a believer now what do we do? Faith and works go together. And so as we look at all the things that Jesus is telling us to do, let's not mess up and get the cart before the horse and try to do these things thinking that we'll be able to do enough good and outweigh the bad in the end. It's not going to work out well for you if you take that approach. But if you listen to the words of the Savior, having believed on Him for salvation, having come to Him and followed Him by faith with your life, if you'll pour over His words, if you'll meditate upon them, if you will hide these words in your heart, it will help you as a disciple to not miss His mark. Matthew chapter number 6, I begin reading in verse number 19. Lay not up for yourselves, plural, His disciples, those who are saved and have heeded His call to follow. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Read verse 21 out loud with me, if you would. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Say that last phrase with me if you would. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into the barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? 
Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of, of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? O oh, ye of little faith. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we, shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all of these things. Read verse 33 with me, if you would. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Lord Jesus, I pray that your words would resonate deep within each of us, myself included. I come humbly dependent upon you for unction, for power. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit, that you would empty me of myself and anything that would hinder you working and moving. And may you magnify your word above all your name today, that name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, the only name that's given that way. Lord, we pray and trust that you'll minister your grace to us and that we would be able to leave here understanding your word better so that we can be doers of your word, not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. Lord, I ask your help and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Who's your master? You know, Jesus says we can only have one master. You read that phrase with me. You cannot serve God and mammon. Do we not live in a materialistic society? Am I off base in making that assumption? We do. How many people could we say, I don't know, but I'm just asking, how many people could we say, really, they spend their whole lives either trying to collect material things or store material things? Don't ask my wife. I don't store any material. I'm just kidding. I do. It drives me crazy. Only, you know, to die one day and leave behind. You've heard the old preacher say, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. That's the updated version from when they had horse-drawn carriages, by the way. Yeah. And so, you know, the desire for money is real. The desire for material things. What I'm setting before you, I believe, is on target with what Jesus was doing with his disciples in this day. Because the real thing that we need to, to weigh in our minds is... Where is my focus going to be? And if we can nail that down with Jesus' help, I believe we will have a closer focus to being on God's target mark rather than missing the mark by focusing on ours. I mean, even Christians, one writer said they spend a great deal of time trying to create heaven on earth, and whatever you store up, you'll spend much more of your time and energy thinking about that and the writer went on to just encourage, don't fall into the materialistic trap because as uh, Paul told Timothy, isn't the love of money still today the root of all evil? I believe the Bible is true when it says that. If there's an evil, if there's a hurt, if there's something that is wrong in the world today, you can trace it back to the love of money somewhere along the line. And I think that just undergirds everything that Jesus is going to say to his disciples here. We don't fall into that trap. We put on the whole armor of God every day. We pray, we seek the Lord, 
And as we set out to follow him, we said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I mean, that's the heart of a disciple, to, to be like their Savior and say, not my will, your will. I want your will. In fact, Jesus just taught his disciples to pray that way, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. As we think about what Jesus is going to say, I want to challenge you to make a decision today if you haven't already. I want you to make a choice. Now, this is a big choice. Don't let this be trite. I'm going to use scriptural terms to tell you about the choice that I believe God calls every one of us to make. Joshua stood before Israel one day in Joshua 24, 15. You see this placard all over walls and homes and things. And, you know, I was door knocking one day and I came up a driveway and I looked on the, I looked on the garage and right there underneath the, the light on the garage was this placard. It was the verse that I'm, I'm about to tell you about. Joshua told the children of Israel, choose you this day whom you will serve, right? And his words to them were, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So I'm approaching this house and I see that placard and I'm thinking, all right, they know their Bible and they've got a, a Bible verse up on their wall. This might be a good conversation. We might have some coffee. No. No. Nice plaque. And I don't know who hung it up there, but it, I, I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't the person that answered the door. Okay. As for me and my house. He put that choice before them and drew the line in the sand and said, are you going to serve the gods that are on the other side of the flood? That your father served. You can do that. You can make that choice. And you can serve mammon. And the choice that is before Jesus' disciples here is a similar choice. Had by the time Joshua stood before them, had they already been delivered by the Red Sea? Had Israel already come through the Red Sea? Yes, Moses had stood up one day and said, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Red Sea, that's a picture of salvation. Had they not already come into Canaan and begun dividing up the land that God promised to them by faith? Yes, even with all their shortcomings, they had. And so that's the picture of salvation and then living the Christian life. And Joshua stands before these that are supposed to be believers. And he draws a line in the sand. He says, you've got a choice to make. And the choice that they would make would determine whether Israel would be a light for God to the world. Or whether Israel would continue further in darkness. I think that illustrates what Jesus is doing here with his disciples very well. Because we have a similar choice. Are we going to serve God? Or are we going to serve mammon? Choose you this day whom you will serve. And this is not me pressuring you to do that. These are the words of Jesus. If you're going to believe that he's the Savior, and if you're going to follow him, then there's going to come a time where you're going to need to recognize that he has to be in the center of every part of your life. Uh, we use a discipleship curriculum, and uh, I go through that curriculum, and Usually when we come to about lesson five, I can determine whether someone's going to stick with it or not. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Because in that lesson, we deal with things like this right here. And we talk in depth about what it means to put Jesus in the center of everything in your life. So you draw a little wheel, right? You put Jesus right in the middle. And then around that wheel, you put work and you put school and you put... All the things that you have in your life, and you put them all around that way, and who's in the middle of it all? Who's in the middle of your work situation? It ought to be Jesus. Who's in the middle of your financial situation? It ought to be Jesus. 
Who's in the middle of your health situation? It ought to be Jesus. Who's in the middle of it? You just keep going around the wheel. Jesus needs to be the center focus of it all. Choose this day. The allurement and the temptation is, even as disciples, even as those who would desire to follow Jesus, to fall into this trap of getting worried about mammon and worried about how we're going to take care of things. Now, I also want to say this. Does not the scriptures teach that if we don't provide for those of our own household, we're worse than an infidel? Did not our Savior teach that we ought to sit down and count the cost to see if we can build a tower or to see if we can uh, go against armies in defense that are coming against us? Can we defend ourselves against us? We need to count the cost. And so when Jesus gives these words, he's not saying throw caution to the wind and just blindly trust. That's not faith, okay? The kind of faith that they're exercising, Jesus calls it out and says, it's little faith. They have faith, but it's little faith. Because they get their eyes on God, but it doesn't take long before, like Peter, their eyes are on the waves. And everything that's going on around them. And that's what takes disciples down. Now, in those moments, I'm thankful that God is always there. And just like Peter, he said two words, and that was all he needed to do. He said, save me. Sometimes we don't know what to say. That's enough right there, and the Lord knows. And we just, like Peter, say, save me. Now, Peter was a believer, right? He's the one who gave us those confessions about Christ being the Son of God. And he knew who Jesus was and was convinced of that. And yet, still, he struggled with this aspect. And may I submit to you that I don't believe there's a single disciple that would set out to follow Jesus that doesn't have to make a similar decision somewhere along their walk with him. What is going to take the focus? What is going to be in the purview? So first off this morning, we're going to choose who we're going to serve. Now, you've already chosen, haven't you? You've said, Pastor, you know, you can fast forward to the end of this message. I'm choosing Jesus. You got me right there. You're preaching to the choir. Amen. Hallelujah. Then come on this side of the line with me and start convincing others, will you? Amen. Okay. Moses also. Uh, Moses stood before Israel time and time again. And encourage them to follow the Lord. Elijah would stand before Israel. And ask them a similar thing in his day. On Mount Carmel. If the Lord be God then serve him. If Baal be God then serve him. So there's always something vying for our attention. We've considered the Lord's blueprints for the blessed life. We've considered how the disciple then relates to his community. Being salt and light. And his relation to the law that Jesus expounded on. And used those six illustrations from the law to drive home his point there, we continue Jesus' teachings to his disciples uh, on communion. So we've moved from the aspect of community now to communion, and then we're going to move into more of a courtroom scenario in having discernment as disciples, and that's chapter 7, that's on the horizon. But in this section of the so-called Sermon on the Mount, we're looking in depth at what Jesus has to say about how to walk with God and how to have communion Not only with him to be right vertically, but to be right horizontally. It always starts from the inside out. And that is a theme woven throughout these these passages. From the inside out. God is more concerned about who we are before him in integrity and walking in character. Than he is about fixing up the outside. What's going on in the heart? Because this uh, this is the seat of everything we are. And this is going to determine whether what we do is tainted or not. When our heart's in the right place, then we'll know where our treasure is. That's his words here. 
And so what do we do as his followers when it comes to almsgiving? And that's a good word. We don't use it a lot anymore. But it does communicate what Jesus is telling his disciples here. When's the last time you gave alms? Disciple? (laughs) Follower of the Lord? Don't answer that out loud, okay? You didn't, I'm glad. But I just want to challenge your thinking on that. When's the last time you helped somebody out? When's the last time you put yourself aside and put somebody else first because they had a legitimate need? Many of you do it all week long. And this room is full of people who bend over backwards and never even ask for anything in return. And that is, a, that, that is just a beautiful gift. A beautiful gift. And it does take a spiritual gift. Some people are blessed with that above measure. And they would have the gift of giving or the gift of helps or the gift of mercies. And that is a Holy Spirit endowment that they give to that person who can do this with the proper disposition, all the while pointing people to Jesus through everything they go through, the ups and the downs. When they don't have it to give and yet they find it somehow and they still give it and they give of their lack. That only happens the right way when they give themselves first to the Lord like those believers of Macedonia did. Almsgiving. Prayer. We've learned how to pray. We pray in secret. We we pray together corporately. What about fasting? Now, what I said last time was that I'm not ready to say that all that Jesus is talking about fasting ends at verse number 18. I think everything from verse 19 to the end of the chapter, maybe particularly verses 19 to 23, We should really keep fasting in the back of our mind as we're reading those words about laying up treasure in heaven. Why are you fasting? You see, you can't disassociate the two. But then you read the rest of the chapter, chapter uh, chapter 6, verse 24, all the way to the end, and I think there's a good argument that can be made to say that this applies to fasting, it applies to prayer, it applies to your almsgiving, Yea, it even applies to uh, what you do in legal situations and circumstances about the law, and it is going to fit into what he said about being salt and light all the way back to the Beatitudes. All the way back. So there is a connection that flows through this that is beautiful. My first question for you, I have two two questions for you to answer between you and the Lord. Honestly, okay, if, if you lie to yourself, that's the only person you're deceiving today. And I don't need to know the answer to this question, but I, I do challenge you to think through it. Even if you've already thought through it before, think through it again and just make sure you're still on track with it. Whom do you serve? Whom do you serve? Do you serve God or do you serve yourself? Remember, my title was simply Two Choices. You've heard that phrase, only two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. So whom do you serve? Let's look at how Jesus will encourage us to check our motives and to check our priorities on whom we serve. We're going to look here at what Jesus says about our passion. We're going to take note of what he says about our vision and then what he says about the disciples' mission. The passion. Okay, let's look at this deeper. Your passion. Which Of these two treasures do you yearn? For which of these two treasures do you yearn? Verse 19, you can yearn for an earthly treasure. 
If you yearn for this earthly treasure and you give your life and you give yourself as a follower of Jesus now, you give yourself to lay up treasures upon earth, Jesus warns, you've got to contend with the moths and they're going to win in the end. You've got to contend with rust, and we'll talk about that word here in a moment, and the corruption that happens. You've got to contend with thieves that break through and steal. In other words, if that's your focus, you're going to lose in the end. You can't take it with you when you go. And when you come to the end of it all, you're not going to have anything to show for it by the time you're done. Moth and rust corrupt. Now the word rust, uh, you know, I... I need God's grace when I'm studying for preaching sometimes because I, you know, I line the passage out and I, I want to make sure that I know what this passage is saying before I go consult others. And it's just that consulting others part sometimes that really grates on me, you know. <laughs> you read commentaries and then people say stuff and you're just kind of scratching your head going, okay. You know, they kick around, well, rust isn't a good translation. And I just say, well, maybe not for your Bible. It, you know, you've retranslated it I don't know how many times but if you just get out you know an old English dictionary the, the translation here is fine you just need to understand what it's saying and not read today's understanding of rust on what was given in the in the authorized translation rust you know we think of rust and maybe you're thinking like me I grew up in an upholstery shop which also had a body shop connected to it my uncle worked on on cars and he would take a, a car a classic car into the shop and he would spend, you know, a lot of time sanding that thing down. And some of those cars needed a lot more Bondo than others. And uh, by the time he got done, it was just smooth. He would take me in and I would feel, you know, where he had sanded. And he would show me parts and I could feel. It's amazing how many sensory uh, perceptions you can get with just your fingers. And you feel that and you can see. You see, this part's been sanded real good. This part hasn't. Well, there were parts of the car sometimes that he would work on that it was just rusted out. So when we think of rust, you know, we think of the old tin roots that rust, right? Uh, and they're that red color, and rust even can be traced back to the word red, ruddy, rust. But rust is not just applied to metal in this translation. It could be applied to grain. It could be applied to bread, uh, corn, and, and there's, a, there's a, a coloration that happens. It starts to you know, grow stuff on it, and it starts to corrupt, and if you want an experiment on that, please don't do it, you know, especially you boys here, but just leave something out long enough, and it'll begin to rust, 